Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. All right, if you would, you grab, would you grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 and continue our study through the book of Matthew? Uh, picking up in a new series, just doing the same thing though, studying the book of Matthew together. Matthew chapter 5, we'll do three verses in Matthew 5, and then we'll study other places as well. This series we're beginning is called The Good News of the Kingdom. Last week we introduced this idea that Jesus came to establish a heavenly kingdom on earth. And he is teaching and proclaiming this good news of the kingdom. So we'll spend the next few months or so studying what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we begin here uh, this week uh, with Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. My voice is fading, and so this is not product placement for all the tens of people who watch our YouTube channel. This is uh, just, I might need a drink from time to time, so that's why that's there. All right, so on the screen now will be some uh, scripture I'm going to use this morning. I just, I want to reaffirm to you over and over again, I'm not making it up. This is all found in scripture. And you can find it there on your own. Uh, And I invite you, if you have questions or challenges, please, um, you can email me. We can talk about it. I want to be available for that. And so these are the scriptures we'll use this morning. We've got a good bit to get through, but not not as much as we have been. So it should be a pretty fun morning. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Then I want to put it all in context for us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, this is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray and ask God for his help. God, we need you. Uh, It's your word written to your people and your voice through your men and women. And so we need you to help us. These are ancient words, ancient text on a page that you've promised to us is living. And so we just ask that you would make it alive again to us today. Open our hearts and minds to you. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't know how things are at your home, um, but anybody have that one place where everything gets dumped, whether it's bills and paperwork or whatever it is? Do you have a place like that in your house? You can raise your hand. Seven of us have. Okay, good, good. We have a place like that in our house, and um, it's where everything goes, like everything, no matter what it is. And I, I mean, I love Sundays, but to be honest with you, coming home after church on a Sunday, we have the most stuff. We have three kids and they all get something from their various ministries. Then we've got to all drop it all off and then pretend like we're going to talk about it later in the week. And so we do all that. And so we stack it all up. And um, Meredith and I have this game we play where we try to clean off that spot. And, well, Meredith plays the game and uh, she tries to clean it off. And then um, when I get home, I try to put my stuff right where she cleaned it off. And then sometimes she'll make a statement. And she'll be like, are you serious? That's what she'll say. And sometimes she doesn't say any words. Her eyes say it to me. And I'm like, ooh, let me get that off of there. I'm sorry. She's like, I worked all day to clean this spot off for you. And now it's, I was like, yeah, thank you. Now I can put my stuff there. Thank you for doing that. It's very thoughtful of you. And maybe it's not a spot. Ours is in the, in the kitchen, like, because where are we coming from the garage? It's that spot for us. Uh, maybe, maybe for you, it's that treadmill in your bedroom that you were going to, for your New Year's resolution. Remember that one? And now it just holds clothes that you don't fit in anymore. That's what happens to those. Maybe you've got like an armchair in your room. And now it's the place where it's that you're like, I need to fold this laundry three months ago. I need to fold this laundry. And now it's here. What happens though is stuff begins to pile up and you kind of forget. There are places sometimes where you kind of forget what that actually looked like. Oh, that, that chair is that color. I, I really didn't know. Or that my countertop is, it really is that color. I had no idea, right? Because we've got to, Take the pile off to get down to what's actually there. So I want you to keep that idea in mind for a couple of reasons. First is this. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount has been a thing that we've piled a lot of garbage on over the course of Christian history. And we've completely missed the point, I think. So we need to be careful to unpack all of it to really get down to what Jesus is actually saying. And then secondly, this one we're going to talk about this morning, being poor in spirit. We've piled a lot of stuff onto being poor in spirit. And I think we need to do some work to get underneath it today. So I think what's happening is I think Jesus this morning is going to give us permission to be human. And some of us hate that idea of being human. Like we've grown up in a world where to be human is to be a failure. We watch movies 
about wealthy men who make themselves into robots because they don't want to be human. They give themselves robotic hearts and all things like that. It's what we're prone to kind of fixate on and think, our, think about our lives in such a way. But the truth is the Lord, I think today, is going to give us permission to be human again. And to be human is not to be a problem. To be human is to be how God created us to be. So I want to walk us into that here this morning. And just, I think, the way the Lord was teaching me of that this morning is, I pulled a muscle in my arm putting my socks on this morning. So I've reached that phase of my life (laughs) where the most dangerous thing I can do is go to bed. That's the most dangerous thing in my life right now because I will pull something. And so that's happened, which just reminds me, man, I'm very, very human. And so I want to, again, give us permission this morning to step into our humanity uh, today. So again, we're going to step into here in this particular section called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through 7. We're going to study over the next few months. But here's the danger, like any part of Scripture. Whenever you pull a portion of Scripture out of its context, it becomes a weapon to be wielded by different extremes, right? So the Sermon on the Mount, if pulled out of more of like a liberal extreme, is a way to prove that Jesus was a great moral teacher. And there are some professors at universities who will call this Jesus' ethic manifesto. This is how he, this is his ethic, ethical manifesto. It's how he thinks the world should work. And they would say, it's beautiful. What a great teacher he is. On the flip side, you've got conservatives who will take the Sermon on the Mount out of context and will now make it the new institution of the Ten Commandments. It's the New Testament's Ten Commandments. And then we, we hold it over people's heads and we oppress them with the things they ought to be. But in context, I think you'll see here this morning and hopefully throughout the rest of this series, it's neither of those. What this is, Jesus tells us what it is. It is the good news of the kingdom. That's what this is. This is good news we are to be studying here this morning. So to do that, I want to put all of it in context. So you're in Matthew 5. Go back to Matthew 4. It'll be on the screen. But Matthew chapter 4, we covered it last week. I want to just reemphasize where we are so we can get the context right here. Because again, it's important This isn't some sermon Jesus delivered some random Sunday. This is him saying, this is the institution of the kingdom. This is what it looks like. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus had been uh, baptized. He was in the wilderness. Then he um, was tempted by the devil. He finds out John the Baptist has been arrested. So now Jesus begins his earthly ministry. This is the inauguration. And he's preaching, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we read that and it gets very religious and Christianese and we don't stop to think about what it actually means. He says, repent. Why? Because there's a new kingdom that's descended and made its way unto the earth. There's this kingdom of heaven that is coming. It's come in the person of Jesus. And so now what has to happen for you and me is we have to decide what we're going to do about this new kingdom, this new reign and rule that has now entered our atmosphere. And what Jesus says is, repent, turn from the old kingdom, turn from the kingdom of the earth, and now fall into the kingdom of heaven. That's what he calls us to do, repent. Why? Because there's a new kingdom here now. Not when you die, not then. Here and now, Jesus is establishing a new kingdom. So we live in between these two kingdoms, and we have to decide what we're going to do with it. And so Jesus calls us to repent, to turn from the old kingdom, and now begin to go after this new kingdom. And he inaugurates it by announcing himself as king. The point he's making is that wherever the king is, the kingdom goes with him. He has established himself as king. Those of us who have daughters, you understand exactly what that means. Because wherever the queen goes, the kingdom goes with her. So there's the entourage, there's all the things. This is what Jesus is saying. Where I have come, I bring the kingdom with me. So this is a reflection of what happened back in Exodus. God establishes his kingdom. And the people sing a song in Exodus 15, declaring him as king. And from there, what God does is he establishes himself a people. Jesus will do the same thing here in Matthew chapter 4 and 5. He's going to establish for himself a people. So what kind of people will he establish? Well, he's the Messiah and he's a Jewish Messiah. So it stands to reason he would go to the Jewish synagogues and he would draw for his kingdom the best of the best, the the religiously elite. And yet... He doesn't. Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, so he's in this area which is uh, not the most religiously elite. In the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. In case you didn't know, that's what fishermen do. Verse 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So who does Jesus begin to establish his kingdom with? What does the kingdom of heaven look like? Well, it looks like these fishermen, which is already awkward in our context. But in their context, these fishermen uh, were men who had flunked out of Jewish school. They had flunked out of religious school. At the age of 13, the rabbi they were studying under could have said, hey, I see this potential in you to, be, to do what I do, to become a rabbi, to be my disciple. And he would say two words to them, follow me. But if they weren't good enough, he would tell them, go to your father, which means go back to your father's business. These men are fishermen, particularly two of them fishing with their father, which tells us all we need to know. They were terrible at being good Jews. They were terrible at it. They're just decent fishermen, but they're terrible at being good Jews. And these are the ones that Jesus calls to follow him. So that's how he begins. This is how he establishes the kingdom. These are the people he's calling to himself. But then it just gets worse from there in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming. What is he proclaiming? What's he declaring? He's declaring the gospel. That word means good news. The good news of the kingdom. And he's healing. Every disease, every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, suffering from seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So he starts, he establishes himself as king. The kingdom is here because the king is here. He starts to establish himself a people. And he's called out these four fishermen and he takes the fishermen with him and they go and now they're starting to develop this great crowd, this great following of people. I want you to pay attention to the kinds of people that they are there. Because in Matthew 5, 1, it says that Jesus seeing the crowd. So we have to ask ourselves, well, who's in the crowd? Because I think what we do is that we picture a crowd much like a, like a rock concert or a church service. And it's nothing like that. This crowd is not like that. In fact, if this crowd were to come into our church service right now, you would start looking for the security people. Who are they? Where are they? And how do we handle what's about to happen? So we got to, again, full context of what's happening. Who is Jesus talking to and why? Who is in the crowds? We just read it in verse 24. All the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So who is in the crowd? Well, this crowd is full of the marginalized of that society. I mean, the poorest of the poor, poverty stricken, because no one will employ these people. They've been cast out to the trash heap, literally to the trash heap. They live in slums that they can make of their own choosing. Whatever they rummage from the garbage, this is what they're making. They are uh, not important. No one cares what they have to say or to think about things. No one cares. They're living in slums. They're outcasts. They're hopeless. And they are desperate people. They don't smell good. They don't know the cultural manners. They don't understand uh, social references. This is who it is. These are, these are these people. They've lived out in the outskirts. And again, I need, we need to use our sanctified imagination to think through what's actually happening. Because if in your mind, you picture a movie scene of white religious leaders following Jesus, you've missed the point completely. These are people who are broken and oppressed people who have no one. They've got no family. Family has ostracized them. They've got no friends. The only friends they have are people like them. This is who the crowds are. And then when Jesus goes to travel and he begins healing more people in these places of Syria and then the Decapolis, who do you think is following him? More people just like them. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not delivered to the religiously elite. It's not delivered to the good Jewish men and women. It's, it's delivered to people just like this. People that are broken and hurting. People that have no hope whatsoever. People who know enough about Judaism to be dangerous, but not enough to be considered influential. These kinds of people. There's no seminary degrees. There's no good church attendance. No Awana awards among them. None of them. These are the people that are following Jesus. So then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, what does he do? Well, he went up on the mountain. 
So where God establishes himself as king as Exodus, he draws himself a people. He sends Moses up a mountain to get a new law, to get the laws of the kingdom. Moses comes down and he begins with the Ten Commandments. What does Jesus do when he's establishing the kingdom of heaven? Well, he establishes himself as king. He creates for himself a people. And what do you know? He takes them to a mount, to a mountain. And he goes up to teach. He is declaring now the new covenant. This is, this is the good news of the kingdom, great news of the kingdom. And then he sits down. Now to sit down in this culture as a teacher would have denoted great authority. If he's able just to sit down and people still listen to him, this is creating a sense of authority. Any good rabbi, any good teacher, when he was ready to declare, to deliver some important point, he would sit down. And a somber, somberness would fall upon the crowd. So he sits down. And when his disciples came to him, then look at this in verse 2. He opened his mouth. And that's not Matthew's sarcastic way of saying anything. This is a very Jewish idiom, which means to say you open your mouth means you're about to deliver something solemn or important. That's what's happening. It's not like Jesus was a ventriloquist most of the time, but this time he actually opened his mouth. No, no, no. What he's saying is this was a solemn, important, authoritative thing Jesus was about to say. And who's gathered? It's the hurting and the broken and the outcast, the poor. I mean, they smell like garbage. This crowd is gathered around him. And he opens his mouth to declare this important, authoritative statement. Well, how important, right? How solemn is this moment? Well, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, we get an idea. Matthew tells us how important this was. Matthew 7, verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the entire sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes, which I feel like is a, I feel like that's a, that's a backhanded statement against the scribes, but really this is about Jesus. He has authority. So they sat entranced by what was happening, astonished by his teaching. So then the question is, well, what does Jesus do to begin this epic, solemn sermon that 2,000 years later you and I would be studying? What does he do? Because if I know, if I know that in 2,000 years people will be studying a sermon I'm delivering, I'm very careful with how I begin it. And I'll probably be much better than I do normally. So he's careful, right? He's going to deliver it in such a way that carries significance. And so here is some significance. Jesus is going to deliver eight or nine, depending on your interpretation, blessings. Moses began with 10 commandments. Jesus begins with the same, with a list, but of blessings, not commandments. This is going to be uh, what he does. This is how he begins this epic sermon for him. How does he talk to these people? What is he going to say? How is he going to introduce his sermon to this crowd of people? who are unimportant and insignificant, that they're hurting and outcast. People who are just scraping by. How will he begin? How does Jesus introduce the good news of the kingdom? Does he break out a tract and give the Roman road? Does he have a tract that looks like a $100 bill that he leaves on the, on the table for his waitress just to make her more angry than she was when she started waiting on him? No, no, no. How does he do it? How does he welcome people into the kingdom? How does he share the gospel? How does he share? He begins with verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That might be all you need to know about Jesus. That might be the gospel right there. And he chooses this word blessed or blessed. It's the Greek word makarios. And what it means is really hard for us to translate into English. I think the closest we have is blessed but it's not like a blessing that God gives. It's more of an, an intrinsic kind of thing. It was used more of a, as a greeting, like a congratulations, or we should throw a party, or this is amazing. That's kind of what's happening here. Jesus says, you should celebrate. Who? You who are poor in spirit. The problem is this word blessed uh, had been used a lot, particularly in Jewish circles. So if you go back and study the Psalms, the Psalms begin with this word, blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This blessed is the man. There are plenty of blessings in the Psalms, but they all have to do with some sort of behavior. Blessed is he who pursues righteousness, who hides the word of God in his heart. Blessed, blessed, blessed. So it creates this understanding of what it means to be blessed. And from there, uh, Jewish rabbis captured this idea and they began to teach this blessing based on this very same thing. 150 years before Jesus comes on the scene, there's another Jewish rabbi, 
His name is Yeshua as well, or Jesus. His name is Yeshua ben Sirah, the son of Sirah. And he's a well-known rabbi who's teaching, again, 150 years before Jesus. And he writes a book called The Wisdom of Ben Sirah. This is not biblical, it's extra biblical. But he writes this book. And inside of this book, Yeshua ben Sirah actually gives his own beatitudes, his own blessings. And I want you to understand, this idea of blessing is what's continued now to this day that Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount. So here's, here's Ben Sirah's Beatitudes. Here are his blessings. He begins, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth whom my tongue proclaims. Blessed is the man. So immediately, half of us are out of ever being blessed because we are not men. You are women. Yes? Out loud, yes? Some of you are women. I gotta be careful, yes? All right, so he says, blessed is the man. So again, immediately now it's just men who can be blessed. And then he makes the qualifications even stricter, who delights in his children. So there's what, eight of us now left? (laughs) Blessed is the man who delights in his children. And he continues down. And the one who sees the downfall of his enemies. Again, it's narrowing. Then he continues, blessed is the one who lives with a sensible wife. Well, now we're all out, (laughs) except for me, except for me. (laughs) Blessed is the man who delights in his children, who sees the downfall of his enemies. Blessed is the man who lives with a sensible wife, who does not plow with the ox and ass together. Now, that's a reference to wealth. What he's saying is you have two different uh, vehicles for different jobs, right? Right? Like, you don't use your tundra to take out trash. You just use it to look cool in the suburbs. That's what he's saying. So you have both. And he continues, blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue. How's that going for you? Is that going well? Does not sin with the tongue or, or the typing. Uh, and the one who does not serve an inferior. And I've heard you talk about your bosses. I know you think they're inferior. So you, you're not blessed. Then he continues, blessed is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to an attentive audience. So now I'm out at that point. <laughs> I want you again to notice how Yeshua ben Sirah defines someone who is blessed. This is a man who has great children. It's a man who is so successful, he's seen the downfall of his enemies. A man who is so wealthy, he has different animals for different jobs. They don't work together. A man who is so successful that he is either the boss of everyone or he just happens to serve someone who might be the one person who's more superior than he is. Blessed is the man who has a friend and a man who whenever he walks into the room, people listen to him. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like just the kind of men we exalt in our world today, does it not? You, you aspire men to be men like this. This is what you want to be. You want to be a man with a wife who loves you, with children who make you proud, with enough money to have what you need without having to borrow a tool from anybody. You want to have a boss you respect at the very least, but at the uttermost, you want to be your own boss. And so this idea of blessing for a Jew is very similar to what it is for us today. So when we we read through the Beatitudes, it begins with blessed, we have the same reaction that people hearing it for the first time did. You begin with blessing, well, I know where this is going. Blessed. And so this group of outcasts and the poverty-stricken are now hearing this from Jesus in Matthew 5, 3, blessed, and immediately their minds check out. Oh, we've heard this before. Like every rabbi begins his teaching with this. We don't qualify. We aren't like that. These, these people, the fishermen, the poor, the sick and hurting and marginalized, they assume we've already heard this before and we get nothing from this. They immediately begin to think, yeah, yeah, blessed are the healthy, wealthy, and wise. We get it. I don't want to buy your timeshare. No. But then Jesus makes this statement. Congratulations. Not to the wealthy, not to the successful. Congratulations to the poor in spirit. So then the question is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Scholars have debated this for thousands of years. Does it mean to be financially poor? Does it mean to be spiritually bankrupt? Like you have nothing to offer in spirituality. 
Does it mean like emotionally downtrodden all of the time? And I think my answer is yes, all of them, yes. Like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but when you are financially struggling, how's your spirit? You pretty happy about that? Does that go well? Like when you know you aren't gonna be able to pay the electric bill this month, you pretty happy? What about, um, what about when you come into a small group or you come into church and you recognize, I don't know any of the things these people know. Does that make you feel really good about yourself? Or what about when it just seems like you just can't get out of bed? Like the depression and anxiety has so overwhelmed you. You just, you just don't know that you can, you can do it today. I would say that's poor in spirit, yes? Whether it's financial, spiritual, or emotional, I think they're all connected. So Jesus now says, congratulations to you who are poor in spirit. Again, let's think about the crowd. Who's in the crowd? Are they not poor in spirit? Hurting, broken, sick, maimed. Never know when a seizure is gonna come. Paralytic, oppressed by demons. So Jesus says to this crowd, blessed are you, congratulations to all of you. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And again, it's important we understand, he's not speaking of some future kingdom with streets of gold and mansions and pearly gates. He's speaking of a reign and rule of God that has established itself on this earth today. This isn't some future promise. This is a promise for today. Blessed are you, poor in spirit, because you get it. This is good news. You get the kingdom of heaven. It exists for the poor in spirit. So how do you think that was received at this mountainside? Like, how do you think the people responded to it? Because if you are this kind of person and you're looking for someone who says blessed, then instead of saying blessed are the wise and the wealthy, blessed is the man with the good wife, but he says blessed are the poor in spirit. I would imagine in the crowd was a bit of mumbling. Like, did he just say what I thought he said? Is that what he said? You heard him, right? Is that what he said? He said, poor in spirit. I think I'm poor in spirit. You've got some who are, there's no way, celebrating, they're exuberant. I just think it was electric in that crowd. Like, I just think there was palpable excitement, confusion, but also like, could this be? Because they knew of a Messiah. They knew enough to know the phrase kingdom of heaven meant that the Messiah was here. And they're like, is he saying he's here for us? Because All we've learned is that he's not here for people like us. You're saying he's here for us. It's electric. So here's sad commentary on the church in 2023. I just don't think it's electric to us anymore. I just think to hear the good news, the gospel, it doesn't do that to us anymore. I think there are a number of reasons why. I think, first of all, we're just too used to hearing it. Like, you hear about the gospel all the time. So it just kind of is what it is. But I think in many ways, we've just misinterpreted what this actually means. And especially in America. Because Americans, we like to achieve something. And we look down on people who are just given something because they didn't work for it. And so we've misinterpreted the gospel to mean something we have to achieve. But particularly, I think we've misinterpreted the Beatitudes to be something that we have to achieve or to earn. And I think it's because we like it that way. And it's why we take the Beatitudes and we make them a new Ten Commandments. But that's never how Jesus intended it. So a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas, who was a Methodist, and he taught at uh, Duke for a while. And so he has this statement that I think is going to help us a lot. It's a long quote, so bear with me. It's a few slides, but I think it's really, really powerful. Going to reframe some things for us. Here's what he says. He says, Too often, these characteristics of blessings have in Christian history been turned into ideals or virtues that we must strive to attain. And when we do that, we turn them into formulas that help us gain status and favor with God, which is, of course, precisely the opposite of what Jesus is trying to say. Rather, they are descriptions of the kinds of people to whom Jesus, in fact, first brought the kingdom of God. Nowhere does Jesus tell us that we should try to be poor in spirit or mourn all the time or try to get yourself persecuted. He simply announces the great surprise. How awesome is that? The good news of the kingdom, we just call it the great surprise. That's amazing. Here's the surprise, that these people who are not significant or honored in their society 
are precisely the ones who have received the honor to be first among those called into God's kingdom. Jesus is just announcing the great surprise. But even as Americans in church, what you want at the end of a 40, 50-minute sermon is for me to tell you what to go do so you can be better at whatever it is. Jesus doesn't lay out a command to be poor in spirit. My sermon this morning is, you're way too happy. You should be poor in spirit. That's not where I'm going. I think that's where Jesus is going. He's not saying, you should, you should, be, you should feel more awful. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's not making it a goal or something to achieve. We love to do that because we love to achieve. We like to achieve for our own status, but I think more importantly, we love to achieve to compare ourselves to others. That's why we love it. And here Jesus is not delivering that. Instead, here's where I think our issue is this morning. I think our issue is that we are too rich to be poor in spirit. I think we just don't want to admit the poverty of our spirit. And so like my kitchen counter, we've just piled stuff on top of it to make us not have to feel that anymore. We don't like it. We're too rich. And I know you're like, I'm not rich, but I know a guy who is. If you're driving a car today, you are part of the 1% in the world. If you have two cars that are running in your driveway, not right now running, that would be bad, go get them, but I mean like that run, that work, you're part of the 0.5% in the world. Right now, we are sitting inside of a room where there is a machine that's treating the air to make it more comfortable for you and for me. Don't you dare tell me you're not rich. You're sitting in seats that have been crafted to have padding exactly where you want padding. You're wearing clothes that you went and bought. We are rich financially. Yes, yes, we are. You're gonna go home or go to a restaurant and you're going to eat without even having to worry about whether or not it's gonna be there for you today. Yes, we are a wealthy people. On the flip side, I would say also, I think many of us are spiritually wealthy. You're part of a good church and you, you've learned a lot of things. You know a lot about God. You aren't spiritually bankrupt. At least you don't feel that way. You don't feel, many of us don't feel emotionally bankrupt today. But I think that's the issue. I think we've just got too many things in the way. I think we don't like feeling human. Jesus tells this story in Matthew chapter 19 of a rich young ruler. He says, behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we like that, right? Like we like goals to achieve. We like status to attain. And the young man said to him, but I've kept all these. Why do I still feel like I'm lacking something? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And the young man heard this. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And I know you don't think you have great possessions because your car is 15 years old. You have great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Not that he can't, it's just difficult. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is not Jesus' indictment on wealth. I don't think it is. But I think it's a warning to us. The more we pile on successes and achievement and money and status and Instagram likes and TikTok likes, the more we pile that on, the harder it is to admit that we are poor in spirit. It's just harder. Charles Spurgeon has this to say. He says, it's our imaginary goodness is more difficult to conquer than our actual sin. For many of us, it's not the fact that we don't admit that we're sinners. It's the fact that we think our imaginary goodness overrides that. So what does it mean to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, it requires us to be poor in spirit, to have poverty of our spirit, 
to feel desperate and hopeless, to feel like we're just scraping by. So think about this crowd. You got the homeless and the beggars, sick and disabled, disabled physically, emotionally, and mentally, mentally unstable, mentally disabled, bipolar, schizophrenic people, the outcast, which means there's prisoners, thieves, murderers, and adulterers. There's the destitute. Think about this crowd and think about yourself in the middle of this crowd and what feelings rise up in you. Men, are you reaching for your hip? Are you reaching for that gun on your hip? Women, are you drawing your purse just a little bit closer? You got your head on a swivel because you don't know what's about to go down here. Are you trying to figure out where that smell is coming from? And Jesus delivers this and what you're feeling. What are you thinking? These people? Them? Because if right now, if, if we all came into church today and none of us were pretending, right? We just wore how we felt. Like we wore the clothes that we felt and we were honest. And somebody said, man, how are you doing? It was, man, I'm great, blessed and highly favored. It was, I feel awful. My marriage is crumbling. I forgot to take my meds this morning. Are you sitting next to that guy? But this crowd is full of them. Just again, why I say I think our problem is that we're too rich to admit that we're poor in spirit. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable about some who trusted in, in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And a tax collector was the most hated of all of them. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. You would never say it out loud, but the problem is God knows your heart. Verse 12, then he says, here's how I know it, because I fast twice a week. I, I go to church every Sunday. I even go to small group. And sometimes I go on Wednesdays. And I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, Jesus says, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which one is poor in spirit? Which one is walking in the poverty of his spirit? It's the tax collector. So again, I don't think the issue is for me to tell you to be poor in spirit. What I'm trying to tell you is you are poor in spirit. I'm trying to let you know underneath all the facade, underneath all the bravado and all the scripture you've memorized and, and the letters after your name because of your theology degree, underneath all of your church attendance and the Christian radio you listen to, underneath all of your financial success, all the fact that you give more than other people, underneath all of that is the fact that you are a poor, you're poor in spirit. You're destitute. You are hopeless. It's another way of saying you're human. Underneath all of it, you're human. Even the Pharisee, underneath all of the charade, underneath all of the fasting and the tithing, was the fact that he and the task collector are not so different. What's different is the expression of it. Well, in Revelation, Jesus is delivering letters to seven churches. And there's one church in particular, this church of Laodicea, that he gives a, a pretty stern letter to. And he tells them, you're neither hot or cold, you're lukewarm. I wish that you were one or the other, hot or cold, but you're lukewarm and will spit you out of your mouth. So let me, let me correct some of your theology here. Jesus is not saying, I wish you would hate me. That would be better than pretending to like me. That's not what he's saying. At no point does Jesus wish people would hate him. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Laodicea is situated between two uh, cities that have running kinds of water. One of them produces very hot, like scalding hot water that is used for healing purposes. And it comes into Laodicea. There's another city that has um, refreshing cold springs of water. And they come from the other side. And in Laodicea, these two flowing bodies of water meet. And when you put hot water with cold water, what do you get? You get lukewarm water. So what Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea is you are lukewarm just like the water you drink. You're not healing anyone. You're not bringing refreshment to anyone at all. 
I would rather you focus on healing or refreshment, but because you can't do either, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth because lukewarm water is disgusting. That's the point he's making. And it's stern to this church in Laodicea. And then he lets them have it in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I've worked for this. I am prosperous. And I need nothing. Then Jesus says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But what's the problem for the church at Laodicea? Did they have... Do they have good teaching? Hmm? Do they have good theology? Yeah, pretty good. Do they, do they serve the poor? They did. You know what their issue was? It was lukewarm because they thought they earned all of it. And they've lost any power they had in their community to heal or refresh the broken. And so Jesus tells them what he really thinks. You know what you are? You're wretched. You are to be pitied. You are poor. You are blind. And you are naked. And I think the call is the same for the church in America, especially the church in the South today. I know you say you're rich. Look at at what we have. Look at all the programs we have and the buildings we have. And you say that you have prospered. Look what we've worked to do. Look how we trained our people. Look at how much we've given, how much we tithe, how much we give to missions. And then you say, the truth is, I don't know that I need God anymore. So we stop praying. We stop seeking his will. We start consulting strategists to come help us build churches. I don't need God anymore. I've got all that I need. And then Jesus says, oh, do you? Because actually you are wretched. Underneath all of it, you are to be pitied. You're poor, blind, and naked. So what's the work for us? Here's the work today. You have to realize your poverty. Underneath all of it. To do that, we've got to sift through everything we've piled on top of it because we don't like feeling human. We don't like feeling like we need something. We don't like feeling that we need God. So in order to achieve something, we'll let God tell us we need something at first and then we'll get better at it so we don't need him anymore. We've got to sort through it. In counseling, we call these coping mechanisms, ways that you cope with your frailty. How are you coping with your frailty? You don't like feeling poor. You don't like living in your poverty, and so we cover it. We do anything we can to cover it. We don't want to feel embarrassed or in pain or ashamed. We just don't like being human. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, when Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world, and he says everything is perfect, it's good. And in that, he created man and woman. He created Adam. The word Adam in Hebrew, Adam, just means human. He created human. And in creating human, that's when he says it's perfect. Adam, as a full-blown human, was exactly how God meant him to be. But the problem is that stupid, slithering, slimy snake showed up. And he said, hey, that commandment God gave you, the problem is, you know, you can be a God instead of a human, but he doesn't want you to be. You can be superhuman. You can be more than human. And in that moment, Adam says, oh, I can be more than human because now human is something I don't want. Now I see something else to be desired. And so I'm pursuing that. It's the same sin for you and me today. It is okay to be human. God likes humans. He created us. He created us. And in our vulnerability, he's given ways to protect us and and help us to, to grow and to prosper. But it's in our humanity is where we find our poverty of spirit. But the problem for us is we hate to admit our humanity. It's why you use filters on social media. It's why you take tons of pictures of your vacations, but no pictures of you paying your electric bill. Right? Because we're trying to prove we're more than human. No, we're not. We're just human. We're just broken. We're just trying to figure it all out. Every single one of us. Whether you've got a doctorate or a GED, we're just trying to figure it all out. And so what we do, because God comes after them, and they even try to hide their humanity from God and put on fig leaves. And I've said it over and over again, that's what we do. We cover ourselves. We cover our humanity. Some of us with addiction, we do anything we can to numb the fact that we're feeling human today. So sure, it could be cocaine and heroin. It could be alcohol. It could be social media, it could be Diet Coke, it could be Netflix, that thing that you are compulsive over. Whatever takes the edge off of feeling poor in spirit, you run to it. 
We run to become an addicted people. We run towards success to prove I'm not human. Look how successful I am. We compare ourselves to other people to prove at least I'm not as human as that person. We cover up our poverty of spirit with blame. Gosh, we love to blame people. Well, I'm only this way because of my ex-wife. No, you're that way because you're poor in spirit. You're wretched and blind. That's why. Well, I only struggle because my wife is, no, 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 no. It's you. We love to blame other people. It's because of what the church did to me, that pastor did. Nope. We just don't want to feel our poverty of spirit. We pile on good works to cover our poverty of spirit. Many of us, we're trying to overcompensate. It's religion. And I think for some of us, it's just knowledge. We try to cover up our frailty with knowledge. So let me ask you this question. I'm going to step right on your toes today. When it comes to small group today or a Wednesday night, is that your chance to shine? Like to prove how much you know? Because the leader will ask you a question like, yeah, that's great, but let me tell you what I learned this week. You know what you're doing is that you're covering your frailty, your humanity, your poverty with knowledge. And it's hard. It's hard for a knowledgeable, wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. It takes poverty of spirit. The kingdom of God belongs to those who recognize their humanity. It belongs to people who clean off their kitchen counters. Because underneath all of it, You and I are just like Adam and Eve. We're just men and women. We're just humans. And it's okay. It's okay. That's the point. The point is that you need God. Even in the garden, they needed God. That's not imperfect to need God. In fact, it's the closest to perfection. That's why the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. It's okay. You need him because you can't figure out how to get out of what you're feeling emotionally. Praise God. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. You need him today because you're not sure how you're going to pay your bills this week. You know what? The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. You don't know how you're going to make it through the rest of your life with this person you're married to. Praise God. Congratulations. The kingdom of heaven is yours. It's yours because you recognize your need for him. Bow your heads and close your eyes as Brandon comes up. I think there's some work that has to be done here today. Because like any good American, we've tried to prove ourselves by our effort, by our earning. And we have moved that into our relationship with God. So much so that you don't even know what your kitchen counter looks like anymore. But I'm going to tell you what it looks like. It's wretched and pitiable and blind and poor, and destitute. That's what it looks like. And that's okay. That's the point. Spent a lot of my life trying to prove I was good enough. And by the grace of God, he swept all that junk off my kitchen counter and let everyone see. And you know what I got? I got eyes to see the kingdom of heaven. That's what I got. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. So God, today, I believe for many of us, is stripping away the things that we've piled on top of our humanity because we don't like feeling that way. We don't like feeling addicted. We don't like feeling like we can't make it. We don't like feeling like we're just scraping by. But that just scraping by is what draws us to the heart of God. You're supposed to feel that way. You can't achieve out of it. You can't success your way out of it. And you can't addict yourself out of it. I want to give you permission today to be human. Because it's in our humanity that we meet Jesus. So I want to invite you this morning to this altar. And I know, like the moment you step out of your seat and come to an altar to pray, people know something about you. You know what they know? They know that you are human. And you can sit there and cover it up all you want and pretend you're not. Like, I don't, I don't struggle with this. That's fine. But I'm going to invite you to the altar. Not because it's anything special or sacred, because sometimes we need to move our bodies in motion. You need to come here and you need to lay down all that garbage you've piled on your kitchen counter and say, I'm poor. God, I need you.
I feel wretched. And here's the beauty of it. In your wretchedness, you get the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations. Congratulations. So what have you piled on? Success, a false bravado, an identity based on something besides being a son or a daughter of God? You can be human here. You can be broken here. You can be wretched here. You can be poor here. You can be one to be pitied here. Because when the good news of the kingdom comes to people like that, they throw a party. And I want a church that parties. I want a church where we're taking the fatted calf and you hear the dancing. That's what I want. So I don't know where you find yourself today. But my prayer is that you find yourself poor in spirit somehow. And that you celebrate over the good news of the kingdom. Blessed are you, poor in spirit. For yours is the kingdom of heaven, the reign and rule of God. And he is a king who can be trusted. I'm going to pray if you need to come forward. I just want to urge you to not for my own satisfaction, but just for your own. We have elders and staff who'd love to come pray with you if you need it today. So God, I am overwhelmed in gratitude to you um, because you exposed my wretchedness and in all the things I was trying to use to cover it up because I was ashamed of it, I was ashamed of my humanity I don't like feeling that way. I don't like feeling the poverty of my spirit. I don't like it. So I would blame and accuse and I would compare. But in a swift act of grace, God, you open my eyes to the kingdom that belongs to such as me. So God, would you make us a church that is nothing like Laodicea? A church that looks just like the crowd who followed your son. Can't believe this is for us. Openly and willingly walk in humanity. Give us eyes to see your kingdom here today. Forgive us for the times we've tried to make your kingdom into the kingdom of earth. Help us to recognize that in our brokenness, you are stronger And we have you. You're a gift to us. Wipe off our counters today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.